First, we explored the issue of covenant because that's foundational to understanding what God's doing in the future is what he's done in the past. Then we looked at the prophets and what the prophets depicted as the result of Israel's disobedience to the covenant and how God would make everything right, all in keeping his plan that he made in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham and piggybacking off of Genesis chapter 3 to Eve. And then after that, we looked at the apocalyptic writings in the Old Testament, the prophetic and then like Ezekiel that goes into apocalyptic. And we looked at how that genre of writing is the one that's aimed at not showing just what God's going to do in the future, but what he's doing now, which foreshadows or, or typifies or hints of what he's going to do in the future. And that's where we ended last week in the Old Testament. Well, this week we're going to get through as much of the New Testament teaching on end times as we can. We may not be able to get through all of it this week, but if we don't, we'll pick it up next week. And then the final week, we'll look at the question of individual eschatology, what happens when you die, heaven, hell, that kind of stuff. A lot of that will be touched on tonight in these New Testament passages because the New Testament goes into depth, much more depth than the Old Testament did on individual eschatology. I love this quote. It's the second full paragraph on page 132. Surprised by hope, he says, We must remind ourselves yet once more that all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing into a mist. Signposts don't normally provide you with the advanced photographs of what you'll find at the end of the road, but that doesn't mean they aren't pointing in the right direction. They're telling you the truth, the particular sort of truth that can be told about the future. And I like that image that he gives of of the scriptures in the New Testament especially, but also in the Old Testament, acting as a signpost. If you're driving on the road and you're an unfamiliar road that you're not sure exactly what's up ahead of you, you see a signpost and it has an arrow that curves this way, you know that the road's generally going to curve that way. Now, it could be a sharp curve, it could be a gradual curve, it could be uphill, it could be downhill. It, it doesn't matter. The road, the sign's telling you what you need to know, which is the road's going to curve, and it's going to curve that way. Get ready. And that's a great way to think about the end times teaching of the Bible, because a lot of people, what they go to the Bible looking for would be the equivalent of looking on a street sign and expecting to see either a full topographical map or even more, a snapshot, a photograph of the actual curve and what it's going to look like. You know, so that's, that's the good analogy of what people expect out of the Bible, which is this detailed newspaper written in advance approach. And what the Bible actually gives us is much closer to a general roadmap street sign than it is to anything with, with definitive detail down to the specifics. But, like he said, it doesn't mean that what the, what the sign is showing you is wrong or that it's not going to give you the information you need or it's not pointing you in the right direction. It is. That's the purpose of it. That's what signposts are for, to make sure you don't go the wrong way or make sure you know what's coming without giving you all the details. And so that's what we see in Scripture is Jesus was very clear with his disciples about the big picture, knowing what's coming, knowing what to expect, but not about all of the details and all of the stuff that you end up having to chart out and explain and, and do all, all the stuff that, that dispensationalism and even some other forms of eschatology seem so caught up in. The Bible doesn't. And that's the most common misconception about it. But because so few people actually have a grasp of the overall Bible, they are just led to expect, well, you know, the Bible has all the answers, so let's go to it and find out what's going on, say, with Iraq or you know, China or Iran or the U.S. or whatever. And so what we see is it's not that specific. 
So let's look at in the New Testament. We're going to start and we're going to try to walk through some of these things. We're going to start in the Synoptic Gospels. And we'll, we'll try to look at Synoptic teachings on the end times, then some teachings from the Gospel of John, and then some teachings from the book of Acts. And then after that, we'll jump to Paul's letters and see what he has to say, and then Peter's, John's, and Revelation if we have time. So, turn to Matthew and the Synoptic Gospels. For those of you that may not have had Bible for the rest of us, the Synoptic Gospels are the Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called the Synoptic from the Greek words soon and um, the word op ophthalmos for eye. It means to see together. And it's because so much of the material found in the synoptics is common to them. In other words, Matthew, Mark, Luke, a lot of times they'll report and they'll discuss and they'll present the same material. They see Jesus very similarly, but each with its own unique focus. Well, we're going to look at Matthew. We're going to spend some time in Matthew. Turn to chapter 13 of Matthew. I want us to start by looking at the parables that Jesus gave about the kingdom. Because a lot of the teachings of end times teachings in the Bible, in the New Testament, are found in parable form. In fact, Jesus was almost unique in that he taught in parables. Very few other ancient teachers uh, in the first century did that. But Jesus was known for it. It's one of his preferred, if not his most preferred way of teaching. Well, let's look at one parable that he tells. Matthew chapter 13, 24 through 30. Uh, there's, there's a lot that could be said about that parable, but we're going to see as far as just how Christians are to relate to one another, to the world, to false teachers, all this stuff. But let's look then. Jesus, he gives a parable, two quick parables back to back about mustard seed and yeast. And then he comes back and explains this first one, which implies this, this is sort of gives you, here's how you understand what I'm saying to you. And then you can imply that to the rest of the parable. So let's read Jesus' own explanation. Somebody, 36 through 43. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Alright, so Jesus explains this parable very detailed. He rarely explains His parables in this much depth. And then he ends it by quoting from Daniel 12, which we will maybe get back to in the coming weeks. But Daniel 12 is the passage in Daniel that talks about the resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked, one to everlasting contempt, the other to everlasting righteousness. And that's where the phrase shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father is based on. But what is Jesus saying is the general course of events to expect in the kingdom? What is, from this parable, what should we expect? There's going to be a separation. There's going to be a separation between 
yeah, a distinction between the weeds and the wheat, or the, if you have a King James or an older, the wheat and the tares, or however your verse translated, the, the good stuff and the not good stuff. And in the meantime, what's, gonna, what's the field going to look like? Yeah, both. Yeah. Right. So people wonder why the church is, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Oh, the church is, well, yeah, duh. Jesus said it would be like this. He said, yeah, he, anytime God sows a field, the enemy's going to come in and sow his seed in there with it. So we should expect that you'll have weeds in the midst of the wheat. But what we want to focus on rather than the present is, is, he says, at the close of the age. Now, some people who are preterists would say this is speaking about the close of the age, meaning the close of the age of Jerusalem, the close of the age of the Jewish people. In other words, before 70 A.D. or possibly 130 A.D. where Israel was destroyed once and for all. The close of the temple age. And that this applies to that because the, the people that were in Israel, that were followers of Jesus, had fled the city and weren't taken, when we'll look at later, when the city was destroyed. And so the city was destroyed by fire and just utterly judged, and Jesus' followers remained, and they shine like the stars in the sky, etc. So preterists would, would talk about that's more like what's going on here. Now, there's not, there's, there might be some truth in some of that, because Jesus' descriptions of judgment frequently do have to do with the judgment that would happen to Jerusalem, as we're going to see. But... Even if that is the case, there is still Old Testament prophecies usually have an initial fulfillment, and then that points to the final fulfillment. That's what we saw with the prophets a couple of weeks ago. They are talking about the day of the Lord against Babylon, or the day of the Lord against the Judah, or Israel in the north, or whoever. And that would be described in these apocalyptic terms that would be ultimately fitting of the final, final day of the Lord. So, Maybe there is a, a hint in here of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. However, this has a much broader application than just that, and it can describe the closing of the age, meaning the age that we're in, the period of history. What is going to take place at the sending of the angels, at the close of the age, when, when, when God sends his, the Son of Man sends his angels, what's, what are they going to do? They're going to harvest. Gather out all of the kingdom, all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers. Yeah, so what's the first thing that's dealt with? At, yeah, at final judgment. Gather all of the sin, all the weeds, and throw them into the fire. Then the wheat is taken into the Father's storehouse. In other words, then the wheat. So the, the, the sequence of judgment, if you were pressing this for a sequential detail, would be, if anything, Judgment, the, 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 weed, the wheat's still around while the weeds are getting pulled and separated. You know, the weeds didn't get taken out first, and then the weeds pulled, and then back to, the, you know, which is what a kind of a rapture understanding would have to read into this. In fact, in the scope of the reference Bible, the, nutty, the, the study note, well, it is a nutty study note, <laughs> the study note for this section says, despite something to, I should have brought it so I could read it verbatim, but look it up. It says, despite the order of this text, the order that it'll happen is different because the church has to be raptured first. So basically it says, you know, I know Jesus said it this way, but just flip that around because it doesn't fit the system. Look it up on your own if you have a Schofield Bible or if you're at a bookstore. But regardless, judgment. Wicked is taken out. Righteous remains. 
and is collected and is harvested and taken in to be with the Lord. All right? Let's look at another parable. Same chapter 13. Look at verse 47. Again, he does this thing where he tells a parable, and then there's two quick parables about the seed and mustard seed and the yeast. Then he explains the parable. Then there's another two quick parables about the hidden treasure and the pearl. And now he's going to do another parable about judgment. Someone read 47 through 50. All right, again, same thing, same order. Jesus talks about it, it's this all-for-one idea of, of all of humanity will be judged all at the same time, and the, the wicked will be gotten rid of first so that, Jesus, so that the righteous can remain. In other words, this is, this is a, a, a pattern that we see. We're going to look at one more example. So, in basic broad overview you have Jesus is seeming to say you've got history let's make this simple then judgment and at judgment is where there's the separation between the bad and the good and I'm using these terms loosely because righteousness and sanctification all that comes into play but basically Good stuff, bad stuff. Good fish, bad fish. Good types of plants, bad types of plants. And the bad is separated so that the good can remain. This is the general pattern that you see. This is the age to come. And this is the age that Jesus and his followers were in. The general sketch outline that Jesus is giving in these parables. Let's look at one more. Uh, flip forward to Matthew 25. We're ju I'll just read. This is the famous parable of the sheep and the goats. And someone read 31 through 33. And then we'll skip down and to 46. So someone 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then he goes on to explain the king will say to those who are on the right, so he's already deliteralizing this within the parable because it was about sheep. Why would he ever talk to sheep? And they talk back. Again, you're seeing the imagery that he's using. Uh, the famous thing about, well, when did we do this? Well, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So he's, he's given a criterion for who will be sheep, who will be goats. And then he ends with verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's again an allusion to Daniel 12. But the, the, the order's there once again. Punishment, away to punishment, get rid of 
the first so that you can remain and the second can remain and have eternal life. That's the Jewish paradigm of judgment. That's the, the paradigm that was throughout the Old Testament and that I would argue is throughout the New Testament is judgment is always something that the day of the Lord is good news for some and at the exact same time it's terrible news for others. It all depends on what your orientation with the Lord is to whether that judgment is good or bad. So the idea of Christians having to be taken out of the world in order to be spared judgment, not in the Bible. Christians look forward to the judgment of the world because that's the vindication of the kingdom. It's two sides of the same coin. There's no need for Christians to fear God's judgment. If they're following the Lord, if they're walking with the Lord, His judgment's a wonderful thing. It's those who are not following the Lord, not walking with Him, are not in covenant with Him, His judgment becomes a dreadful thing. Uh, Two sides of the same coin. Let's look at one more. Turn to Luke chapter 12. We see another theme that Jesus and the other New Testament authors will allude to this parable specifically that Jesus tells. Luke 12, 35 through 40. Someone read this one for us. Okay, <clears throat> he is speaking here, and there's, there's again the mixing of images, but he's given one image of a wedding banquet, and a master's coming back, and the servants are, are ready for him. They're waiting, even if it seems like he comes back at the second or the third watch. In other words, late, late night at the banquet. They're still waiting for him to come back. That's what Jesus wanted his followers to do, is, is to be prepared for whenever he could return, even if it lasts a long time. This gets overlooked in a lot of times when people said all the early Christians just figured Jesus would come back during their life. Well, they, like you talk about, they, he could have come back during their life, but no, none of his believers were distraught when they started realizing, oh, maybe he's not coming back during our lifetime. It's, it, Jesus prepared them for that, or at least his teachings did. Whether they took that to heart obviously is up to them. His parables always are giving the big picture. The one point, the main point. And in this one, he uses two images. He uses servants waiting for a master who's returning, or he uses somebody who gets their house broken into. And he says, basically, the servants, this is it's good if the servants are awake, because then when they get back, the master's going to be overjoyed. And he'll actually become a servant to them, if you reread this parable. It talks about the master putting on different clothes and serving them. Very close tie to what John we see in the Gospel of John, where Jesus does serve and washes their feet. But then he says another example, the idea of the owner of the house getting broken into. He says, if the owner had only known, if he was waiting, he would know, and it wouldn't have happened. So it's two reasons to be watchful. One, so that you can rejoice at the return of the master. And two, so you, you don't get taken by the action that comes. So, you don't get, um, so you're not on the wrong end of the return. Mm. So again, we're seeing the general pattern, watchfulness. 
that judgment will come. It will come quick. Let's look at one more from Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 8. Somebody read this one. All right, now Jesus' parables are starting to hit close to home. Because in, in, in Scripture, fig tree was an image for Israel that was used. A fig tree, a vine, a field. These are all images for Israel. And Jesus' earthly ministry was about three years. It's very interesting that that's the number that he chose here. But what he's saying is, in this section, you're starting to see Jesus basically pointing to Israel, saying, for three years I've been coming see if there's fruit and there's not any cut it down and then somebody intercedes and says wait 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 just give it one more year just give it one more year the thrust of this parable is Israel is on the verge of experiencing getting cut down and burned uh, the judgments that God unleashed in the Old Testament when Israel was disobedient are now coming to fulfillment again ultimately in Jesus because in the past God just sent prophets and people that speaking on his behalf. But now, and Jesus tells another parable about this, he sent his son. And the ones who reject the prophets suffered punishment, and it was bad. The ones who rejected the son, theirs will be worse. And so within Jesus, you see, and N.T. Wright, and not just in Surprised by Hope, but especially in his other books like The Challenge of Jesus and Jesus and the Victory of God, he makes a big deal about this. Jesus was sent primarily as a prophet, just like the Old Testament prophets, to get Jerusalem, Israel, the nation, to turn back to God, away from, from this, what they had become by the first century. And he, he gave warning after warning after warning. And this is one of the explicit warnings that the, time, the clock was ticking for Jerusalem. And this all culminates in what we see in Holy Week. His biggest uh, elaboration of this is the Olivet Discourse, and we'll look at that one in just a second. But once again, there's this, this impending warning on Jerusalem and on the city. In that same chapter, look at one more parable that he tells, verse 22. <clears throat> I'll read this one, Jesus, verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you'll say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he'll reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from the east and the west, the north and the south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are, the, indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and the first who will be last. 
uh, Jesus then goes on to lament over Jerusalem. Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here predicting that one of the motifs in the Gospels is that those who are on the inside track with God, the ones who are supposed to get it, were often the ones who miss it. And the ones who weren't supposed to get it, whether they're pagan astrologers who come and give gifts to the baby Jesus in Matthew, or whether they're centurion, Roman occupying invading forces, Roman centurions getting their servants healed, or Syrophoenician women who aren't even part of Israel experiencing healing. These people are coming to Jesus in order to, to experience the God of Israel, just like the plan was from the beginning. Remember, God will call Israel to spread his light to the nations. And if Israel doesn't do it, then a new Israel is going to come and do it. And that new Israel in the New Testament is Jesus himself, not the church, not another people group, but Jesus. He's doing all the things Israel is called to do. And so if Jerusalem rejects Jesus, they're rejecting the God of the covenant. They're rejecting the God of the Hebrew Bible. They're rejecting God if they reject Jesus. You cannot reject Jesus and still be cool with God just can't, based on Jesus' teachings, based on every teaching in the New Testament. It's an idea that's crept into Christianity because we want to have the same question that this person asks. You know, are only a few going to be saved? Are you telling me it's going to be? You know, Jesus doesn't answer with numbers or anything. He says, make every effort that you are among the ones who are not destroyed. If you remember that we looked at, the covenant with Abraham was unilateral. It was only God walked through the pieces. There was no, if you do this, Abram, then your descendants will be blessed. It was, I'm going to do this and bless your descendants and use your descendants to reach the world. Then, so that, that's going to happen. A seed of Abraham is going to be the one who blesses the world. Now, then the next step of that, as we looked at three weeks ago, was the calling out of the nation of Israel, who were in the line of Abraham, the seed of Abraham as a nation, would be if they obeyed the covenant at Mount Sinai, which was very conditional. It's filled with if-then language throughout Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you obey my covenant, then you will live in the land. You will be my people. The nations will come to you. Riches, all this kind of stuff. If you break my covenant, you will be wiped out. And we saw it in the Old Testament, and it's going to happen again in the New Testament. And so in order for the Abrahamic promise to still happen, there's got to be a seed of Israel. There has to be a righteous Israel in play. And what you see in the New Testament is that righteous Israel is Jesus. He, he's, he is the culmination of all of Israel. He's in the line of Israel. He is the Davidic king. He is the seed of the woman. He's all of the promises of the Old Testament coalesced into one person. And the only way that could happen is if that one person was somehow more than just a person. If he was one like a son of man, not just a son of man. If he was God in the flesh. So Jesus ties all these things together. Jesus basically says, put all your eggs in my basket because there's nothing else apart from me. And it's a bold claim, and it's a claim here that, that um, raised eyebrows. And so we have Jesus. One of the things that guided his ministry as he looked forward to this judgment was that, that part of this judgment, we'll see, would initially happen in 70 A.D. And that's the fall of 
Jerusalem. In 70 AD, and that's the impending, this is the, what Jesus is looking at on the horizon. But that is described in terms of the final judgment. That won't be the end of all of the space-time universe because Jerusalem will come to an end. The end of the age of the nation of Israel will happen. The temple will be destroyed, not just leveled to the ground, but utterly destroyed and no longer need to be rebuilt. In the Old Testament, the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And when it was destroyed, it was rebuilt after that because it was still where God worked through His people. It was still, the, the, whole, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the Covenant at Sinai was still in effect. This, uh, the Old Covenant was still going on. And what you see is with the arrival of Jesus on the scene, the Old Covenant gives way to the New Covenant. And Jesus' life is the, the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And when Jesus dies on the cross the night before, Last Supper, He says outright, plain and simple, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 are now happening. Only He doesn't say it in those words. He says, this is My blood of the New Covenant, which is poured out for you and for many. In other words, Old Covenant is finished. Not done away with, not abolished, not cast aside, finished in all of the good sense of that word, finished. So now we live in the New Covenant age. Part of this New Covenant age means that those who are still clinging to the Old Covenant hopes, but not obeying the Old Covenant law, or who are trying to obey the Old Covenant law, and the New Covenant has come, that's going to come to an end. And it's going to happen. And Jesus said, it's going to, we'll see in a minute, He said it's going to happen this generation. He said that in about 30, 33 A.D. It happened in 70 A.D. In Jesus' words, a generation did mean about 40 years, and He didn't have to revise it like some of the popular books on prophecy. He meant it, and we see it happening. So Jesus is seeing that. So some of His, 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 his emphasis was on this day of the Lord that would happen to Jerusalem. And Jesus weeps about it here. He sees it coming. He sees that they're going to reject Him. He's pleading with them not to, but He sees that they will. And He's hoping that the remnant of Old Covenant Israel will believe, will accept Him, will become part of New Covenant Israel so that God's plan to reach the nation can continue through Israel. All right. So it's still Israel but it's Israel after Jesus. It's Israel who believes in the New Covenant Israel, not Old Covenant Israel. And this is really crucial for interpreting events and, and teachings and things that talk about Old Covenant Israel is somehow still in effect. Uh, Jesus was very, 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 very clear that the covenant was finished. Last thing He said on the cross, it is finished. So let's look at some discussion of this phrase, um, the Son of Man and His coming. Daniel 7 says, Behold, in the night there were visions. I saw the Ancient of Days, and I saw one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds. 
He was given all authority and every nation, kingdom, tribe, all that worshipped him, etc., etc. So for Daniel, the coming of the Son of Man was, was someone who was like a human coming on the clouds to the throne of God, coming from earth to heaven. In English, when we read the New Testament, especially if we don't know the Daniel background or don't know it well, we read the phrase coming of the Son of Man and we think of the second coming. Because the English word coming and the second coming, it's the same thing. But what N.T. Wright and other New Testament scholars argue, and I think convincingly, is when Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man and coming on clouds, he is referring not to his second coming when he comes back to earth, but to his exaltation and his lifting up, his being enthroned, and his vindication, which includes judgment on the enemies of God like what would happen in 70 A.D. as well. And on page 125 of Surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright says, First, when Jesus speaks of the Son of Man coming on the clouds, he's talking not about the second coming, but in line with the Daniel 7 text he's quoting about his vindication after suffering. The coming is an upward, not a downward movement. In context, the key texts mean that though Jesus is going to his death, he will be vindicated by events that will take place afterwards. What those events are remains cryptic from the point of view of the passages in question, which is one good reason for thinking them authentic, but they certainly include both Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple, the system that opposed him and his mission. Now, when Jesus goes in and he... he overturns the temple tables and everything, he's, he's acting out a parable. The, the New Testament talks about, just like the Old Testament prophets would act out their parables, you know, you'd have uh, um, Ezekiel would make a little brick uh, city and then build a ramp against it, and he's basically saying this is what's going to happen, or, or he would cook his food over cow manure and symbolizing this, or he'd take a pot, Jeremiah would smash it into pieces and say this is... You know, they would act out these visuals. Well, when Jesus came in and overthrew the system of the temple, he was acting out a very strong visual. He was basically saying, my father's house was to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of, of, of zealots, brigands. The word thief isn't a good translation because you don't execute thieves. It's revolutionaries. You've turned it into this geopolitical, pseudo-religious uh, hangout for only the chosen people, when you're keeping Gentiles out, you're doing everything that the, the covenant was given to not do, you're doing that, and because of that, this temple is going to be cleaned out. This thing's going to be leveled. It's going to be overthrown. And he enacted that with his actions on a small scale, and then in 70 AD, 40 years later, it happened on a large scale. Uh, one of the things... Let's see... Yeah, on page 127, Wright goes on to say, and this is where he distinguishes himself from, from the, the preterist view. A lot of people have misread N.T. Wright and have said he's a preterist. He thinks it all happened in 70 A.D. No, not the case. He says, Nor will it do to say, as some who grasp part of the point but have not worked it through, that the events of 70 A.D. were themselves the second coming of Jesus, so that ever since then we've been living in God's new age and there's no further coming to await. This may seem to many readers, as indeed it seems to me, a bizarre position to hold, but there are some who not only hold it, but also eagerly propagate it and use some of my arguments to support it. In other words, some people use my arguments to support preterism, that, that it's all over in 70 AD and we're now living in the new age. He says, this results from a confusion. If the texts that speak of the Son of Man coming on the clouds refer to 70 AD, 
as I've argued that they in part do, this doesn't mean that 70 AD was the second coming because the Son of Man texts aren't second coming texts at all, despite their frequent misreading that way. They're about Jesus' vindication. And Jesus' vindication through his resurrection, ascension, and the judgment on Jerusalem requires still a further event for everything to be complete. Let me say it emphatically for the sake of those who are confused on the point and to the amusement, no doubt, of those who are not. The second coming has not yet occurred. So he's saying basically, Jesus, the passages that talk about the coming of the Son of Man are not second coming passages. There are second coming passages that talk about Jesus' return, and there are plenty. But those aren't the passages that are frequently seen to be talking about it. In other words, people misread, they lump them all together and read every passage Jesus says about coming of the Son of Man. Oh, that must mean his return. And we'll see that in the Olivet Discourse especially. Look at, let's look real quick at Matthew 10. Flip back to Matthew and let's, let's see what kind of paradigm Jesus was operating under. Matthew 10, 17. Now Jesus is talking to his followers. He's sending out his 12 followers. All right? He's sending his disciples out. This is, is not, he's not looking 2,000 years into the future and talking to a final generation. These are his followers that he's talking to here. He says, he goes on, he talks about in verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as serpents, as innocent as doves. Verse 17, be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now that's just a little quick synopsis of the whole book of Acts. Like if you wanted to see this played out, you could read the book of Acts and you'll see his followers are brought before kings, local assemblies, they're kicked out of synagogues, they're flogged, they're not prepared for what to say and the Holy Spirit speaks through them. You know, guys like Stephen, he was just waiting tables and then all of a sudden he becomes the longest sermon giver in the entire Bible. So all of this happened to Jesus' first followers and it's all recorded in the book of Acts. He goes on though, it gets... This is where it gets ominous, or even more ominous. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, people that read Son of Man passages as referring to the second coming like early, uh, or not early, but last century text critical New Testament scholars would say things like, well, see, Jesus said he would return before the first generation of Christians even finished their mission. And so then they say, well, then, so everybody was looking forward to his return. And, and then people who read that and they want to defend Jesus, they have to do all this kind of wrangling to make it seem like that something happened that stretched out this time period. And so that his coming... Uh, you know, they still haven't gone through all the towns of Israel even yet. You know, it's taken 2,000 years. Well, none of that's necessary because Jesus isn't talking in this section about his second coming. He's talking about the enthronement of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man is Daniel 7. It's the exaltation of the risen Christ to the heavenly rule of the universe. It's the Son of Man. It's his ascension. And, and along with that, it's the events that would unfold as a result. 
and all the things that the Son of Man would go on to warn the followers about. So this actually, if you read the Son of Man coming as referring to Jesus' vindication and the judgment on the system that put him to death, which was the city of Jerusalem, both Jew and Gentile were always not like the Jews did it. You don't even have to get into all that. It was just Jerusalem as a, as a city opposed him with their official rulership. That city was destroyed in 70 A.D. before Jesus' followers had even gone and made it throughout all of the towns of Israel. In other words, within that generation. So Jesus was right. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about that. Um, look at, flip to Matthew 16, because this is a theme that he'll pick up on again. Verse 27. Uh, he's going on to talk about if anyone would come after me, get, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That phrase, take up the cross, means be executed by Rome. In its first century context, it doesn't have the meaning it has now. Then he goes on, verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what He's done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Again, first Jesus has said the Son of Man coming has to happen before His followers are able to go throughout all the towns. Next, He's saying there are some here who won't die before they see the Son of Man coming. All right? So he's, he's giving time markers of when this has to happen. So if the Son of Man coming is His second coming, then He is either wrong or there's a 2,000-year-old disciple roaming the earth somewhere. Right? But we know that neither of those is the case. Finally, Matthew 23, 29 through 39. This is, this is when Jesus is the end of His ministry. This is Jesus now. He gives the famous passage in Matthew 23, the seven woes, where he's... He's, he's, this is Jesus in Old Testament form. He is full-on Old Testament prophet right here, lamenting the impending destruction of the city he loves and the people that he loves, and who he's trying desperately to get to turn from the path that they're on to the path that God has laid before them. And he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we'd lived in the days of our forefathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how long will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel, Cain's brother, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That's the last event that happens in Second Chronicles. I tell you the truth, all of this will come upon this generation. So Jesus again is saying, I'm, 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 it's like that, the parable with the fig tree. You haven't borne fruit for three years. I'm going to give you one last chance. I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you, I'm basically foreshadowing what he's going to do in the book of Acts. I'm going to send you, even after you kill me, I'm going to send you a, little, a few more messengers and hopes 
that you'll turn in hopes that you'll recognize, in hopes that you will not do what your forefathers did, which was kill every prophet that God ever sent to you. And so Jesus is saying, but you will, and it'll happen in this generation. Right? So he has put a time frame on when these events he's talking about will happen. So when we go to these passages and we read them, we can't just do what I hear a lot of preachers on TV, radio. You read it in books. You read it in study Bibles. They'll go to these type of passages and they'll just immediately assume he's talking about his second coming. But he's not, or else he's a liar or a false prophet because he said this is going to happen in this generation. And we'll see it in all of it, this course, which is coming up next after this. So he ends with this way. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. So what's happening is there's in, in the coming of the Son of Man, and I'll give you more passages on the handout next week that, that are parallel in Mark and Luke to these, but this coming of the Son of Man has a lot to do with the events of 70 A.D., that's the, when Jesus is referring, in these, at least in the Synoptic Gospels, these are the events he's talking about because he says things like it'll happen in this generation between Jesus and the coming of the Son of Man, between 30 A.D. or 33 and 70 A.D. These things are going to happen. Your house is left you desolate. The, the temple's destroyed. He's giving a time frame when it's going to happen. So all that being said, let's read the Olivet Discourse. And let's see what he says in it. It's Matthew 24. It's also found in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. You gave us the task to read the book of Daniel mm-hmm. during this time. One thing I was not sure about, the king of Persia. So how do you explain it? Without getting into it, um, Daniel in Apocalyptic talks about that, that there in, in apocalyptic literature, earthly events are tied to heavenly events. And so nothing happens on earth apart from something happening in heaven. And the, 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 prince of, the king of Persia, prince of Persia, however you want to say it, some have seen the one who opposes uh, the angel before he can get to him, that that is the apocalyptic way of describing why there was such a delay in getting the message to Daniel. And, and then people have built all sorts of demonologies based on one little cryptic apocalyptic passage. So short answer You'd have to go, go to, a, good, go to a, a number of good Daniel commentaries, look at that passage and see what they say. But don't try to, or I would say not to try to construct a spiritual warfare map of which spirits over which territory and this and that, because that's when you start getting in off into kind of people making stuff up. Um, Daniel is pretty much talking about the devil at this point. There's... Maybe, maybe just talking about one of the spirits of this age, one of the powers, principalities, all the stuff that the Bible hints at. Remember, the, it, that's the kind of passage where it's helpful to remember the road, map, the road sign versus the actual reality, and that Scripture gives hints and glimpses. Uh, but for reading any apocalyptic, especially Daniel, is, is, is one of those you can't just do a daily devotion. I'm going to read from Daniel. Like you, you need to work through the book systematically so you can see the themes repeated and have somebody alongside guiding you, talking through you through things. And that usually happens in the form of a commentary. All right. um, Thank you. Yep.
let's look at the famous Olivet Discourse. Now remember when we looked at dispensationalism, Tim LaHaye said, I gave you the quote from him, he said, this is the single most important prophecy in the entire Bible. All other events in the world history can be hung on this clothesline of the Olivet Discourse. In other words, the Olivet Discourse lays out where everything is headed. And I, I'll look it up in, in after class if you need that quote. But, I mean, it, so for dispensationalists and, and for end times in general, the Olivet Discourse is seen as kind of, mm, this is Jesus' big teaching. So let's read it. Matthew 24. And it's found in various forms in Mark and Luke, but primarily Matthew is the long, uh, the, the most self-contained. That's the one we'll look at. Matthew 24, verse 1. Someone read verses 1 through 3. Just the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. Somebody read the context of it. All right, pause right there. What's the situation? What kicks this whole discussion off? They're looking at the temple, right? Because these are fishermen from Galilee. They're, the temple is the most impressive structure in that part of the world at this point. Herod's temple was amazing. They're just like, wow, look at all this. Isn't this cool? You know, it's like if any of us went to Notre Dame or somewhere and St. Paul's or St. Peter's, wow, this is amazing. So they're, they're, they're talking about the temple. They point it out to Jesus. What does he say? It's going to be destroyed. Yep. He said, you see all this? Not one stone's going to remain. In other words, talk about like Debbie Downer. Like Jesus, this buzzkill. They're just... Enraptured, probably in good, pious Jewish worship law. You know, the temple is what every Jew prays. There's all throughout the Psalms it speaks of God's, God's house and His dwelling and the temple and the sacrifice and everything. And Jesus says, yep, it's all going down. That's, that's big. That's huge. Well, so then He goes over, crosses, leaves Jerusalem, and I don't have a map of it, but walks right across the valley. Up onto the temple, the uh, up onto the Mount of Olives, where he can look at the temple, see the whole city of Jerusalem. He's sitting there, and then what do his disciples come up and ask him? Two questions. Yeah, wait a minute, Jesus. When is this going to happen? You know, like this whole destruction of the temple that you just dropped that bomb on us and walked away. When's it going to happen? And then what do they ask him? Yeah. So when's this going to happen? And what's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, when they say you're coming, do they, are they asking about Jesus' second coming? Remember when Jesus died, who were the most disillusioned people in the world? The disciples. Because they had no understanding of Jesus going anywhere, much less a second coming. They had no, Jesus had told him he'd die and he'd rise from the grave, but they had no idea of this, I'm going to leave you. Even when he would try to hint at it or talk at it, they'd ask him, like, wait, where are you going? You know, like, why are, you're taking us with you, right? Like, what? They have no 
conception at all of, his, of what we think of as the second coming because they don't think he's going anywhere except for to Jerusalem to reign and become the Messiah. So then in their minds, they're thinking, okay, well, if this temple is going to be destroyed, that means you're going to set up something even greater or, or something. What should we be looking out for, for your coming? And, and I would say along with N.T. Wright, when they say you're coming, they're, not, they're thinking about you're coming into power. You're, they've had three years of this Son of Man coming teaching. They would think, yeah, Son of Man coming into power, being exalted, receiving all the glory, all worship, all everything. Now, Jesus knows there's got to be a death and resurrection in between that, but they have no understanding of that. At least we can't see anywhere in the text, anywhere in the Gospels, that they understood or even thought that that was a possibility. So them asking what's going to be the sign of your coming, they're, they're thinking their generation. And then when they say, and the end of the age, some people just assume that that means the end of the world. And that's how it's read in all the apocalyptic books. Why would his disciples be asking about the end of the world? They're expecting the Messianic age. The enthronement of Jesus and the reign of him as the Messiah, the Messianic age that was talked about all throughout the prophets, all of the, the, the lion and the lamb lying down together and all of the blessings of Israel and the nation being exalted, all that stuff we looked at, the, all the stuff that we talked about, does it describe a future millennium or does it describe the new creation? That's what they're asking about. That's what they're looking for. And so they ask him this, what's going to be the sign of your coming? Because your coming will be what kicks off the end of this age and the beginning of that one. So they're not asking about the end of the world. At least I would make that argument. Um, the, the end of the world is not what they're thinking about. So whatever Jesus says after this needs to at least be understood that he was referring, he in answering their questions, was speaking primarily about events that would take place in their life, not about events 2,000 years plus into the future. Now, in good biblical prophetic fashion, events that take place in their life can foreshadow events. In other words, the shadow of the final judgment casts a long, or you know, the light of the final judgment casts a long shadow back in time, and the events of Jerusalem could depict on a small scale what the events of the final judgment will be like on a universal scale. Just like the events before this in Babylon, the destruction of Babylon was described and the destruction of Jerusalem was described and all of these things kind of cycled forward and pointed forward. History was always pointing forward to the final day of the Lord. The excerpt on the Olivet Discourse from the Dictionary of Biblical Prophecy and End Times, it gives you the ways that the Olivet Discourse has been interpreted. The Preterist view which said everything Jesus is saying in this whole section happened in 70 AD. The futurist view, which is dispensational and others, that said all of it is describing the end of the world, the future, all that kind of stuff. And then what they call the already not yet view. And that's the view where there's all different ways of how this plays out with specific verses, what's talking about the stuff that's already, what's talking about the stuff that's not yet. But basically they're saying that that Jesus' answer to the disciples not only answered their question about what would happen in 70 AD, but that he then dropped in hints or, or, or explicitly mentioned things that would only happen at the end of the age, the true end of the age. And so within the Olivet Discourse, there's some things. So you can go through, and this is where in Matthew commentaries, you'll find different passages, different 
interpreters saying, okay, this probably means this, this probably means that. But let's just read the Olivet Discourse and see what Jesus says and see what you think fits best. Jesus, talking to his disciples, verse 4, Olivet Discourse said, Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. All right, who's the you in this passage? The disciples, right. So, again, he's not talking to us, or at least he wasn't in this context. This may apply to us, but first it has to apply to them. Golden rule of interpreting the Bible. Can't mean to us what it never meant to them. So, he's talking to them. So, this stuff's going to happen, or at least it's going to begin happening in the lives of the first disciples. Watch out, no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the, quote, abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So, if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go out. Or, here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. That word vulture is also the word for eagle, by the way. That's important. We'll note later, but there weren't two different words in Koine Greek. Then 29, immediately after the distress of those days, here Jesus is going to quote from Isaiah, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send his angels or messengers, same word, with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it's near, right at the door. Here's the kicker. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, 
up to the day Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right. A whole lot of stuff in the Olivet Discourse. Different forms of it in Mark and in Luke. But in reading through, interpreting, what are some main points that Jesus is emphasizing? Repeating his teaching that he's done before. Be watchful. Be watchful. Whatever he's talking about happening is going to happen swift. What else? Yes, there are going to be false prophets coming. Yep. Don't believe them, though, because the real one is already here. What else? Why do you think in verse 29 he quotes Isaiah? Talking about the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light. Most, a lot of people don't even know that's a quote from Isaiah. But that's actually a quote from Isaiah talking in Isaiah. If you look at the context, it was given to describe the things that would happen surrounding the destruction of Babylon by Persia. Yeah, he's, it's apocalyptic imagery. He's using it from Isaiah. It's very interesting that Jesus is saying what's going to happen is going to be, and then he quotes from Isaiah, but he quotes the passage in Isaiah that's talking about the fall of Babylon, the historic enemies of God's people, but he quotes it to describe the fall of, in this section, what city? Jerusalem. That's scandalous. Jesus is saying, you are the Babylon of this generation. You're, you, that, that's the way his quoting, his alluding to the destruction of Babylon. Jesus, talking about the sun will be dark and the moon. You know, I used to, as a kid, when, when my sister and I would look and we'd see like the moon, you know how it's red sometimes. We'd be like, oh, you know, like it's the end of the world. And because the idea of the moon has to be darkened or the moon has to turn to blood like Revelation talks about or whatever. Totally didn't know that that's Old Testament language for the destruction of Babylon. And that in this section, he's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and quoting from that passage. What, look at verse 34. Because this is, this is one that Christians have had fun with. I tell you the truth. Here it is again, the same thing. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Jesus himself, in verse 34, he, he puts a deadline on it. In other words, he says it's going to happen within a generation. Now, older scholars, uh, I believe Albert Schweitzer and others, who said everything about Jesus, was he was pinning his hopes on his coming, his 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 death on the cross and resurrection, all this kind of stuff, he was expecting the end of the world. 
and it didn't happen. And his early followers had to figure out a way to make it seem like there was this delay. In other words, he would read passages like this as a failed prophecy because he's reading all of this stuff as describing events happening at the end of the world. And the world didn't end. Well, Christians who also read this passage as describing the end of the world have to go to all sorts of links to get out of the plain meaning of what Matthew 24:34 is saying. You know, the, the, the champions of literalism in interpreting the Bible. You interpret it literally, you interpret it literally. Matthew 24, 34. Well, Jesus wasn't literally talking about the end of the world. Because again, to uphold this system that, that all of these things are talking about end events. But neither of those are reading it correctly. If Jesus says this is going to happen in this generation, then that should determine how we read this, the Olivet Discourse. And we can't just read it as, well, I can't understand how he could describe the suffering that happens in that generation as being unequaled from all of creation. Because certainly the Holocaust was worse, or certainly this and that was worse. Well, that may be true on a literalistic reading. But we have to take Jesus' word for it that he was speaking about the events that happened in that generation. Because he said he was. In verse 34, he flat out says it. The other way that Christians have gotten around this, and good old NIV, <laughs> you'll read, there, there, there's, there's a footnote there. Right after that word generation, there should be a little lower, a C in the NIV, and it says, or this word generation, it could be translated as race. So, what Jesus is, then, then it would read, I tell you the truth, this race will not pass away until all these things have happened. So, he's meaning that the Jewish race will not be destroyed until everything's happened. Nowhere else in Matthew's Gospel ever does that word mean race. Um, it always means this generation, especially when it's used in the way Jesus is using it. And you can go through and see. Just get a concordance and look up generation in Matthew every single time. The, the, the footnote in the NIV, it's an embarrassment. I hope they're going to change it in the 2011 edition because biblical scholars have taken them to task for this and said, look, this is you were you are catering to your market of, of, of dispensational futurist readings because this is not, there's no way that this can mean that. What that does is it robs this of any prophetic meaning at all because what Jesus was basically saying is, Israel, trust me, listen to me, the Jewish race, Israel will be around all the way up until Israel's destroyed. That is an example of reading a system into the text when Jesus, if you take the plain meaning of it, he seems to be pretty confident that everything he's talking about is going to happen to that generation. And lo and behold, what happened in 70 AD? Not one stone remained on the temple. Before we look at the Olivet Discourse in context, this one is the one, because we do talk about the Bible for the rest of us, so I know some of you heard it there. As it was, look at verse 36. As it was in the days of Noah, excuse me, 37. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So let's say this. Let's say that this section... All right, everything past verse 35. Let's say that this section is talking about the future, the second coming, for the sake of argument. All right? Even if this is talking about the future, a futurist reading, this fits with everything else Jesus was saying about this final judgment and the separation of good and, and bad and, and evil being taken away first. Because in the days of Noah, verse 39, they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and did what? took them all away. So in Noah's day, the ones who were taken were the bad people, taken in judgment. 
And the ones who are left were Noah and his family. It, there, you don't need to appeal to any Greek or anything. It's right here in the text. You want to be left behind. Oh, somebody please make that bumper sticker. You, you, you want to be left behind. It's just like his other parables. The flood swept the evil away so that Noah and his family could then remain in the renewed creation on a mini scale. Well, Jesus is like, that's how it'll be. One, that's how it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man. And preterist, like we talked about, Jerusalem when 70 AD came, you could say Jerusalem was destroyed. But Jesus' followers had gotten out of the city, so then when, it, when the Rome was gone, they were back. Then they spread everywhere, and they remained while the nation of Israel was destroyed. That might be pushing it too far. Regardless, if it is talking about the very end, you don't want to be taken. Because the taking is not going to be a rapture to heaven. It's going to be taken in judgment just like it was in the days of Noah. So it fits with his sayings. I'll give you what I think makes the most sense of the Olivet Discourse. And then you're free to read the commentaries, look at other views. You know, this, this isn't definitive, but to me this makes the most sense. Look at this excerpt, the, the sheet that I gave you that says excerpts from the Jewish war. Josephus was an eyewitness to the, the war of Josephus was born after Jesus, um, and, but he was around at 70 AD. In fact, he was on the side of Rome, and Josephus gets a lot of flack for this, but Josephus was pragmatist. He knew Rome's going to win, and if anything, I want to be good with them. So he basically functioned as a Jewish historian to the Romans. In other words, kind of a, uh, let me explain these people that you're at war against better. You know, I'm valuable, don't kill me. Kind of. So he has a mixed reputation, but if you look at his description, and this is in, you can read this in the Jewish War 6, starting in verse 1. Look at the way he describes the destruction of Jerusalem, and then I've put in italics passages from the Olivet Discourse. So, for instance, when Jesus you know, he said, at that time many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, look what Josephus writes, 6.1. Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem grow worse and worse every day, and the seditious were still more irritated by the calamities they were under, even while the famine preyed upon themselves after it had preyed upon the people. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon the other was a horrible sight, and it produced a pestilential stench which was a hindrance to those who would make sallies out of the city and fight the enemy. But as they had their right hands already polluted with the murders of their own countrymen. In other words, during this Jewish war, Jerusalem was surrounded, it was put under siege, and then Rome just sat there. Because that's how you take a city. You just sit there and wait. And eventually the people inside, they use up all their goods, they can't get any goods from the outside, nobody can get any goods into them, and then they start turning on each other. And then they start, it, it's, it's ancient warfare 101. Well, Jesus said, at that time, many are going to turn away from faith, many are going to hate each other, they're going to betray each other. Father will kill child, child, father. All these things, you read the whole account of Josephus, all these things happen. If you understand, or I'll, I'll, let me suggest that Jesus was looking at the events of 70 AD through prophetic insight from the Holy Spirit and seeing primarily the events of 70 AD and describing them using prophetic, apocalyptic, language that would be found in Old Testament description. In other words, he used things like hyperbole. You know, somebody, I was talking to a friend and he said, 
Well, Jesus said that, that this has to be talking about the future. Most people think the Ovid Discourse is talking about the future tribulation, that we're not there yet. He says this had to be talking about tribulation because it said it will be worse then than it's ever been in the history of the world. And I said, well, that'd be true if Jesus had never spoken in hyperbole. But Jesus always used hyperbole. I just used hyperbole right there. See, he always, he didn't always, but he frequently used hyperbole to make his point. In other words, he said things like gouge out your eye if it offends you. You know, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. Anybody that's come to me must hate his mother and his father. All of these ways that Jesus, Jesus spoke in ways that went beyond literal understanding frequently. So if we look at Jesus describing the horrors of 70 A.D., in apocalyptic prophetic language, using hyperbole, using figures of speech, using cosmic events like the sun going dark and the moon and stars falling from the sky. If we allow for that, then Jesus' description in the Olivet Discourse of what we know happened when Jerusalem fell lines up pretty well. Even his stuff about, um, I'll buzz through some of these, the things about no stone being left on another. Well, when the temple was burned, the whole temple was coated in gold, in the inside at least, the Holy of Holies. So when, when the whole thing was burned down, the gold seeped through the cracks. Roman plunderers and, and people coming scavenging after the fact pried up every single block to get to that melted gold. Not one stone was left on another. Um, when, when Jesus talked about wars and rumors of wars and nations rising up against nations and famines and earthquakes, all during the period between 30 and 70 A.D., one, there were multiple earthquakes throughout Asia Minor. There were wars, obviously in Jerusalem, but also throughout the Roman Empire. And the famine in, in the city of Jerusalem itself was so bad that people began boiling the leather of their shoes and their belts and eating that because it had some trace amount, because leather's skin, of, of nourishment even got to the point, and this is when it was, Jesus says, this, it'll be worse than it's ever been and worse than it ever will be. Look at what Josephus writes uh, about cannibalism in, in, in Josephus 201. He says, um, backing up before that, he says, but I'm going to relate a matter of fact, the like of which no history relates, either among the Greeks or barbarians. It's horrible to speak of and incredible when heard. Now, Josephus there, he just gave a little hyperbole. There was a certain woman that dwelt beyond the Jordan. Her name was Mary. She was with them, besieged therein, meaning she, she was in the city as it was besieged at this time. What food she had contrived to save had been also carried off by the rapacious guards who came every day running into her house for that purpose. In other words, the soldiers and the people besieging the city to get their food to keep fighting, they would steal it from the people in the city. Um, if she found any food, she perceived her labors were for others and not for herself. And it was now impossible for to find any more food while the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow. She then attempted a most unnatural thing and snatched up her son who was a child sucking at her breast and she said, Oh you miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve you in this war, this famine, and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we'll be slaves. This famine also will kill us even before that slavery comes upon us. Yet are these seditious rogues more terrible than both of the other? Come on, be my food, and be a fury to these seditious rebels. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son, and then roasted him, and ate the one half of him, and kept the other half concealed. 
Upon this, the rebels came in presently, and smelling the hard scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten already. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion for them, and with this uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with a horror and amazement of mind, and stood astonished at the sight. When she said to them, This is my own son, and what's been done was my own doing. Come eat of this food, for I've eaten of it myself. The whole city was told of this horrid action immediately, and while everyone laid this miserable case before their own eyes, they trembled as if this unheard of action had been done by themselves. So those that were thus distressed by the famine were very desirous to die, and those already dead were esteemed happy because they had not lived long enough either to hear or to see such miseries. Look at Jesus' words. How dreadful will it be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. The horrors of the famine and the siege in Jerusalem that we know of, Jesus was speaking of in the Olivet Discourse and warning against. And, and, And all of the stuff about the cannibalism and everything goes all the way back. That happened during the siege of Jerusalem by Babylon. That happened, that, that you can read in Deuteronomy. Read the really graphic passages at the end of Deuteronomy where God warns, if you break my covenant, when the nations come in and besiege you, you will, you will resort to the worst of all behavior. And so we see glimpses of that. Um, you can read more. There's a really interesting... You, somebody mentioned you know, all the stuff Jesus said about false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. Lo and behold, Josephus describes false prophets coming up. People saying, yeah, he's out there. Oh, he's there. And people going off and, and dying because they followed these false messiahs, false prophets. And there's even a case at the very uh, end of it where as the city was just at the very end, this, this prophet named Jesus, another prophet named Jesus, came and basically said, the temple is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. And the leaders took him, had him flogged. And then eventually he stayed and continued to speak against the city even while it was being besieged. And, and a catapult from Rome actually took his head off while he was proclaiming destruction over the city. Um, so, so Jerusalem did not treat Jesus's who talked about its downfall very well. And we see that in the life of Jesus. The main thing that the Olivet Discourse makes clear, despite what Schofield and LaHaye and other people have said, is Jesus was talking about 70 A.D. That is what he was describing. Now, will, will that be what the final worldwide judgment, not just of evil in Jerusalem or Rome or any of that, but worldwide judgment of evil? I think it will make that pale in comparison to it.